Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome into the podcast. You know as well as I do that we hit a lot of topics that relate to rural or wilderness type settings. Today, we got a guest on, Tony Torre from Urban Survival Craft, that's going to talk about the variances, the differences that you see in urban survival. Tony has lived through a bunch of both natural and man-made disasters in his home state of Florida, and he gives some fantastic insight that's going to be helpful to you. And it was definitely helpful to me as well. So here's Tony. Tony Torre, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, man. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, man. It's uh, I, I alluded to it in the introduction, everybody. But this is one of those times where social media is a good thing, in my opinion. Because yeah. uh, Tony and I have never met before until now, which is a good thing. Get to learn a lot about him right along with you guys. But he contacted me through Instagram and contacted my wife because my wife does everything on Instagram and everybody thinks it's me. And she said, hey, you need to talk to this guy. So I'm talking to Tony now and glad to have you on here. And looking forward to this for a while now. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. So what happened, uh, everybody, some of you all probably listen or check us out on Instagram, too. But Jennifer, my wife, often puts up on our stories questions and it's rare that Jennifer puts something up on our stories on Instagram that we don't. Well, I, was, I shouldn't say we never get surprised, but we almost always get surprised by how some of the answers come out. But the question was something along the lines of I can't remember exactly what's the difference between urban and rural survival. Tony sent me a message saying a couple of things. And I thought, hey, man, we need to talk about this. And so I asked him if he's interested in coming to the podcast. And so that's why he's here. Tony. What's the difference between urban and rural survival? It's an interesting question because really our needs are the same. You know, we need food, we need water, uh, you know, we need uh, company, we need medical, we need all of the same things. It's how we procure them, how we protect them, how we store them that may vary. I'd like to think that the, that the urban side of survival is more compartmentalized than the rural. Mm -hmm. side of survival, but it's, it's going to be particularly when we're talking about preparedness, it'd be largely the same stuff, right? Some of the things might be a little bit different. You may have a larger piece of land that you can do stuff on, whereas I may be a small, uh, living in a smaller apartment. 
So storage becomes a problem. So there's some, some differences that we can unpack throughout the conversation, but largely our needs are going to be the same because, you know, after all, we're humans and we need the same things. So the, the, the biggest difference, I think, uh, is the size of things. So you'll have more space to work with in a rural setting. You'll have, uh, uh, larger access to certain resources that we may not in the city and vice versa. We have access to certain things that you may not have so much access to. Um, so a lot of us would be situationally dependent, but our needs are going to be the same. So as we unpack it, we'll kind of look a little bit deeper into that stuff. And I think it's probably worthy of discussion for everybody listening. Tony, if you, if you don't care, tell everybody, you know, in general where you live and oh, tell I, them- I live in Miami, Florida. Yeah, so this is real different compared to most of the folks that we have on because we're primarily talking about rural survival or naturalist training or something of that nature, tracking or something of that nature. So this is really good that you're on so you can hear well, – because we've got a lot of people that listen to us in these large cities, and so this would be a good one as well. You you may also be traveling through a city or what have you, but, but I'll tell you this much. Uh, growing up in Miami, I watched the city grow. It grew from a small city that had a small-town feeling into a huge, massive metropolis. And I've got to watch that transition. And along the way, there was a lot of different things that we've learned. Uh, for those of us that have been here for a lifetime, we've watched it grow and we learned a lot of things along the way. So I think that there's going to be stuff here that might benefit people of, of all types. So uh, living in Miami for that long, when did this transition occur there? I mean, this is kind of not important to uh, the education I want everybody to get, but just tell me more about Miami. Okay, so my parents came here in 1959, escaping a communist revolution, and they set root here. And actually, both my parents met here, but they left They left around the same time and arrived here in 59. And back then, Miami really was a small town. If you look at the pictures, this was a small town. In fact, the place where we teach our classes out of has a really strange structure in the back where people park. It turns out that at one point in time, that was actually that was actually a stable for horses. That's how how rural this area at one point was. Then in the eighties, you had the uh, the drug trade really stepping up their their uh, their business enterprises in this area, and Miami started to grow. As a matter of fact, if you want to see a really good documentary on the history of how this came to be, uh, it's uh, called the Cocaine Cowboys. Miami literally grew. As, as a way of of uh, washing drug money, so all, a lot of these buildings hmm. and things that came that came up overnight uh, were a way of, that they were laundering drug money. So in the eighties, you saw a huge boom and massive growth, and through the nineties, the growth continued. And now you have you know music videos being filmed in what was once a small little city, and now it's become a major metropolis. You have people coming from all over the world. You have people filming music videos and you have massive nightlife and it's, it's become this huge, this, it's a thing of movies. Right. What's the population down there now? Last time I checked, it was over 3 million people in, in Dade County. Wow. In one city, man. And that's the ones that are, that, you know, it's, it, it's very transitory though. At any given time, it could vary quite a bit because you have a lot of tourism. You have a, a lot of people that are moving through here temporarily. Uh, I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. So why are they coming in and moving out so quickly? Is that because of the drug trade? That's the nature of it. We're, ah, we're a major okay. port. Uh, oh, we have okay. From all over the world coming here. 
you have you have people that are looking for opportunity. You have people that are moving out that can no longer afford to live here because the cost of living here has become astronomical. I'm lucky that I'm, I've been here since for a long time, so you know the I'm fairly well established. But somebody coming in here now would have to have a lot of money. It's very expensive to live here. So how does the the crime? How is it affected by people that are so transitory? Is there a lot of crime on those people? A lot of physical assault and stuff of that nature because there's so many uh, new people coming in. And, and I mean, criminals see those people a mile away. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity, right? When you have a lot of movement, there's a lot of opportunity. But I'll give you, uh, we, we talked about this earlier, but this is kind of like a, 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 a more obvious point. So in the in the early 80s, we had the Mariel Boatlift. This is uh, when it was a mass migration of Cubans into the Miami area, and Fidel Castro took the opportunity to release a bunch of prisoners, patients, and sent them all our way. In fact, he he joked on TV that he was flushing his toilet onto us. And we had a massive crime wave that went through the roof, and it never actually came down. I mean, it came down some as they managed to get it under control, but the baseline always remained fairly high for crime. And any big city where you have a large transitory population is going to have a lot of crime. In fact, the biggest problem in cities is, is the human problem. It's crime. There's a lot of opportunity and, and people that need and or have no other uh, opportunities will resort to crime. And it's just it's a natural thing. And the population density is so high that you're going to have necessarily a higher number. It may proportionally it may not be so high except for certain areas. But in just in the raw numbers, it's huge. It's Everybody knows somebody that's been a victim of something at some point. Much better than living under uh, living in Cuba under Castro, though, right? I mean, for the people that like your from parents, they got. From, from what I understand, but when you when you have a large population of criminals, and that's all that they know, then that's yeah. what they're going to do. If you're going to do what your what your trade is, you know, if you're a carpenter, you'll go to carpentry. Thieves will go to thieves. So you know, I was not aware until you said that from a historical perspective that Castro dumped all criminals and mental folks our direction on purpose like that. I was not aware of that. Interesting. Well, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting tactic to destabilize a population. You insert right. a, an element that's going to create problems and now they have other problems to deal with. So that I, I suspect that that was part of his overall strategy mm-hmm. against the U S I mean, he wasn't quiet about it either. Yeah, obviously. Uh, listen to what you're saying. So Miami being the most southern large city, it just collects a lot of people because there's resources there for for anybody, really, if they know. How, if, if you don't mind stealing, a large city has got a lot of resources. Oh, yeah. And a lot of places to hide. And that's another thing about the city is that you can hide in a city very easily. You know, you have you have a large transitory population. Mm-hmm. You have a huge melting pot. You have a lot of people that may or may not speak the same language. A lot of people that are, are suspicious of each other, so they're not willing to directly interact unless they absolutely have to. It's very easy to disappear here as well. So what is the role of, because I checked a little bit of your background out, you teach some self-defense coursework as well, right? I do. And so is this something, self-defense, you know, from, and, I, and I've been preaching this message, message for a while, and you can agree with me or disagree with me, but it seems like where there's going to be a larger populace, Self-defense is a more likely statistically thing to happen than the typical person that's, you know, one person on 100 acres by themselves or something. So self-defense is a critical component of self-reliance in a big city. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part? It's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. I got into martial arts as a young man out of necessity. Um, Not to explain that to me. What do you mean? Was there a lot of fighting or a lot of uh, aggression? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I grew up in the 80s and uh, late 70s, early 80s. And that was a very volatile time here in this city. There was a lot of violence. It was, it was you know, it was really a kind of a crazy time. And uh out of necessity, I had to learn how to defend myself. I've been a practicing martial artist since 1978. I've studied a lot of stuff and I was teaching uh, martial arts the day that the concept of urban survival craft happened. And, uh, we, we could say that this, that this whole thing that we're doing, urban survival craft, is a direct outcropping from my martial arts classes, which was okay. kind of interesting because a lot of times it's the other way around. You get the, the survival and preparedness minded people looking towards martial arts as a supplementary skill. And what happened in class one day was very interesting. We had a power outage at the school because the transformer blew up. The whole block was out. And I, I, you know, I looked at the class and I said, listen, guys, we're right. It's right at dusk. We have some light. We can train. We can train until it goes dark if you want. And after it goes dark, if you guys want to stay, I can show you some cool stuff. I learned some, uh, some flashlight stuff and some low light work back in the 90s from Andy Stanford. Uh, that was part of my uh, initiation into the tactical world. I worked for Andy Stanford's uh, Options for Personal Security up until he left Florida. And uh, so I, I taught some stuff to my martial arts students, and they were like really happy with that material, which otherwise they may not have gotten it. Sure. But then after class, we had a great conversation, as we often did. But this time, the conversation was more about uh, preparedness. Uh, mm -hmm. They were concerned about things like the fragility of the grid and, and being self-reliant in an urban setting. And, and most of them came to me to learn martial arts as part of their preparedness efforts. To me here, I, I took it for granted. You know, this is something that everybody should learn. I, yeah. I never question why. It just makes sense to me. But here we had this greater conversation. And they told me, man, we have these concerns. And I made some comments. And I tend to be... Yeah, I'm, I'm 52 years old right now. Most of my students are much younger than I am. And even the adult students were significantly younger than me. So I mentioned some stuff about some things that I've been through. I, you know, I went through Hurricane Andrew. I spent a month, over a month without power. Um, I went through the riots of the 80s and the later riots in the 90s. So I know a little bit about civil unrest. I, I saw a few things. So, so I made some comments that they were like, wow, man, you really know a lot about this stuff. And I'm like, well, you know. And anybody that grew up where I did would know the same things. And, and here I am taking it again for granted, thinking to myself, yeah, duh, doesn't everybody know this? And here I am 30 years older than most of my students, most of them who have been living through the most peaceful time ever. They have no idea. Nothing. They have they really seen nothing. Like sure. the, the biggest, most recent scare that people had was like Y2K. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. Right. Oh, hey, it's the right yeah. Y2K. But, right. um, but I saw some stuff. And so they said, man, it would be great if we could have classes that covered this stuff. I like it when that kind of stuff happens, don't you? Yeah. No, no. Listen, this was a huge light bulb moment. Sure. I, I set upon hiring people to come in and teach us stuff. And it was great. I met uh, one of one of my biggest mentors, uh, Cesar Moritong. He's the guy that, that introduced us to the whole world of trauma management. Opened up a whole world of, of uh, you know, emergency medicine that everybody needs to know, but very right. few people were teaching. And, and we were very blessed because if you try to hire Caesar now, he's, <laughs> he's super busy training, uh, you know, SWAT teams and flight medics and doing all types of stuff. And here we had this great opportunity. So along the way, I brought in a lot of different experts and very quickly started to discover that survival means different things to different people. And that's where it got really crazy because, you know, some people are concerned with like, say like urban preparedness and other people are concerned with, you know, bugging out and, and establishing uh, uh, an escape route out of the city. And, and other people are looking at hunkering down and some people like to spend time in the outdoors and, and that may actually be part of the process to getting to where they're going. And, and all of and then I brought in a lot of people mm-hmm. and along the way, this is, I almost feel a little bit guilty. It's like I'm cheating because I have like an, an in-house uh, instructor cadre coming to me. I'm hosting all these seminars and I'm doing all this stuff. And I got all these great certifications and stuff along the way. But what it kind of really got me thinking is what are the, the commonalities between all of these disciplines? Because there was just way too much. If you start stacking stuff like on, on a map with coverage, eventually becomes this big blob and you're like, okay, now, now what, how do I transmit this information out to, to the world? And we found there was actually four, four major areas. And if you make a Venn diagram of the four major areas, that's where urban survival craft lives. And the four major areas are preparedness, you know, the, the typical, and here we, we know a lot about preparedness because we're, we're right in her in, in a hurricane country. So get hurricanes all the time. So preparedness and next to that you put wilderness survival underneath that you put emergency medicine and next to that you put self-defense and you put all four of those in a venn diagram that's urban survival craft and we've managed over time and we're you know this is also an evolution we're also refining our process as we go along our classes learn from each other and we learn from feedback and improve our our product as best we can because at the end of the day, we're not really experts, are we? We're just students that are, we're trying to put that out there. If you take the, like, let's mm-hmm. say we take like the preparedness <clears throat> bubble in the Venn diagram, and we kind of break that down because we have another formula that we like. We want to prepare for something as optimally as possible. So when it comes to gear, we want to get the best, most pertinent stuff that we can get. We like, we like the modern gear very much because it's effective and it takes away a lot of our work, but we don't want to be dependent on that either. So we started looking at stuff like homesteading and, and even uh, primitive living. And, and we started moving back through time, trying to see what was done before. So um, in preparedness, we started looking at homesteading and we started looking at uh, primitive living. And we got a lot of really good information from third world and developing countries. There's a lot of useful information that we extracted from that. We interviewed a lot of people. We know a lot of people. Um, my parents, for example, they grew up in rural Cuba in the 1920s. Tell me about that. I mean, tell me, tell me what kind of things come out of 
somebody that's lived in that sort of environment that you well, teach? Tell me some specifics. Let's not talk about general things. Tell me some specifics. Okay. Okay. What comes immediately to mind is, uh, so I had a, I have a friend of mine that came to Miami in the 90s. And this is during what was called the Cuban special period. This is right after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Cuba collapsed because they were being subsidized by the Soviet Union. In that period, this was the worst and the bleakest that they had been for a long time. And, and they were pretty bad. So to make it worse was just absolutely terrible. So anyway, my friend's father and his grandmother were actually the village herbalists where they lived. Had no access to medical. This is this is a real big problem. Now I have a, a friend of mine who just retired from the military, and uh, on the interwebs he goes by Doc Diaz. Some of you may have seen him if you're on our stuff. And he's working for a he's working as a flight medic in a major metropolitan area in another state right now. And because of his experience in the military, he was uh, he was brought in to speak to the city people about. Their, their medical preparedness and what would happen if they had a major problem. And he did the study and realized that if you had a major terrorist incident, or not even a major, he said a minor terrorist incident in that particular city, they were going to have a major problem because the hospitals would be overrun. So medical is a big problem. To, to take care of yourself medically, medical uh, preparedness, I, I think that's a huge takeaway from talking to these people. A lot of these people are very self-reliant because they know that the system's not going to help them. One of our big interests after Caesar opened our eyes to the trauma is, well, that's all great. And, you know, back then they were talking about the golden hour and, you know, if the, you know, if you, you get the guy and you stabilize him and you get him to definitive care, but what, what happens if you don't get to definitive care? Let me make sure I understand what you're meaning by trauma care. You're talking about tourniquet use, hemostatic agents, yes. stopping the bleed, large cuts, large gunshot wound management, um, stuff of that nature. Yes. Just making sure we're on the same page. Yep. Yeah. 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 The uh, medical is a huge deal. So I just I just threw two things at you was the the people in foreign in, in developing countries that have lack of of medical. Right. And my friend telling us that in his city that it just takes some. It just takes a, a not even a major terrorist event, and the hospitals would be overrun. Mm-hmm. Now, here in Miami, I can tell you that on any long weekend, the emergency rooms get overrun anyway. You go if you go to the to the big central hospital, you got to wait for hours unless you have something massive. So what's going wait. on there? What's why? Why are they so busy? Is it all gang related activity? No, no. We got three million people here. If you, you raise the, the problems above the baseline, even a little bit, it's, it's, it magnifies itself. So there's not enough medical facilities in, in Dade County to handle just the, and so why is there not more medical facilities? There's not enough money. Are they losing money? Or, I mean, I'm sure that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Okay. I, I think that, I think that's a little bit above my, uh, okay. my yeah. understanding, but I did have that conversation with a hospital guy and, uh, and I'll leave it vague on purpose, but. He told me something that I suspected, but it was kind of scary. And he says, listen, the reality is that hospitals, they kind of work like hotels. And if you don't fill up all your beds, it becomes unsustainable. And eventually you're going to have <laughs> wow. a problem. He left New York to, he came to Florida from New York because they were experiencing that problem where he was at. A lot of hmm. hospitals were shutting down because they just weren't, they weren't, they weren't filling the capacity. 
So that's kind of his story. And guys, take this as a grain of salt because this is just a conversation I sure. have. Really yeah, no, well, we understand. A, that, that's outside my area of expertise. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. I got off on a tangent. I just, I find it interesting that on a every weekend, we're going to be maxed to capacity. And people need to know that sort of stuff. Oh, sure. I mean, they need to know that on a weekend, you, you're in a car wreck, you might die. There might not be enough area or surgeons to work on you. Oh, well, here, here, here's a, here's a funny one. That's maybe not so unique to us, but it may be unique to, you know, it may be a little bit strange to a lot of people around the country. We have a mat. We, well, we had it, it. It hasn't come back since COVID, but we used to have this big music festival um, where they played all types of uh, modern electronic music. The amount of drug overdoses that happened at that huge festival, which was an internationally known thing that people would fly into this into this uh, city to participate in the amount of drug overdoses alone would over would overrun most of our medical and that was one festival and the reason i'm asking tony is because i've talked on podcasts before and been interviewed before about different things too and one of the things that keeps coming up and and it's just interesting that you brought it up too is music festivals are one of the worst places that you can go to for safety I'm part of InfraGuard, which gets, I get some, not necessarily classified information, but information from, from federal law enforcement on different threats, if you will. And there's a lot of stuff that happens at music festivals, man. So it, it, a microcosmos of that is a nightclub. And I managed, I managed two very popular nightclubs back in the nineties. And um, I came in, I went into that business as a naive college kid that needed a, you needed a way to make some money. And I, I very quickly started discovering there was a deep underbelly of all types of crime and just human ugliness that surrounds that world. And, it's, and, it, and, it, and it rotates around vices, right? So right. there's a lot of drugs. And whenever you have drugs, there's money. And in between, there's, there's all types of sex and the depravity and, and all types of degeneracy. And it, it's like a really like it's a downward spiraling mess. So, yeah. So you take that and you magnify it into a big music festival. and You have all types of stuff, everything from from sex crimes to to drug sales to violence. And of yeah. course, there are people that are that are enforcing the, the drug culture. So there's violence. Mm. It, it, can, it can get ugly. So. We're we're on another subject too, but I want to go back. That brought something up that comes to mind is that human trafficking is probably a major issue down there, isn't it? Oh yeah. Well, and be, so self defense and just situational awareness is going to be a critical couple of self reliance skills in your neck of the woods. Uh, let me let me talk about that because listen, human trafficking is, is is a lot of people don't realize quite how prevalent it is. We, we've seen a lot of it. Recently, as a couple of years ago, there was a huge operation where they went to the uh, to the Asian massage parlors in our area where mm -hmm. my office is, and they raided about six or nine of them. Or I forget however many of them there were, but there was one that was not really far from my office. They had nine girls living in there, and the place you look at it from the outside, and you're like, I don't see how you can have anybody living in there. From what the how dirty it was or size. Size-wise. Oh, man. And there's nine and, but, in there. And, but then you got to consider, nobody noticed that there was an unusual amount of garbage or that the, mm. you know, the plumbing usage was a little bit above. There, there are too many things that didn't add up. 
Um, but what happens? There are basically indentured servants that they, they finance their way into the United States from Asia or South America or wherever they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Then they hold them as slaves and turn them into prostitutes. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible thing. It's, it's huge. And you know, a lot of people will, will joke around about, oh, yeah, the massage parlor and get a head job and blah, 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 blah. But what they don't realize is, like, listen, these girls aren't doing that because, they, you know, because they're not doing it for the money because they're not getting paid very well. They're paying right. off a debt. They're doing it under threat of violence in a foreign country where they may not even speak the language. Their immigration papers and all that stuff may be in limbo. They're terrified of the authorities here and their overseers. It, human trafficking is a horrible, ugly thing. About a decade ago, when the when the whole Haitian earthquake thing happened, that was another. We saw a whole bunch of stuff related to uh, to human trafficking, where there was people that were helping people escape from the island to basically to collect slaves and human trafficking hmm. uh, leading to slavery is not just in the sex trade. There was people that were into forced labor. Uh, all, all types of stuff. So, I'm, and I know we're getting off what we originally started to talk about, but I think that's something that needs so much more awareness. It's such an ugly thing, and it's so huge basis. So, to get it back to our audience, uh, I think some things that we can help them with is how do we increase their situational awareness, or what kind of things can you tell them to help them see these things from two perspectives? One, they don't become part of some human trafficking situation where they get nabbed, and number two. They can report such things. What kind of things are we looking for? There, there's a lot of things that if you know the area and you know what's normal, and if you understand what the baseline of the area is, we'll, we'll start to, to kind of look weird. Um, but let's look at general awareness, because there, there's a lot of resources that are put out for you to be aware of, of uh, human trafficking. And that a, a simple internet search will yield all types of important stuff. Things like uh, minors that are traveling with somebody and they're acting, uh, they're acting weird. There, there's no like affectionate, uh, affectionate gestures or very little communication, or or the the adult is is very controlling and restrictive of their movements. There, there's things that you can look for that. But as as far as general situational awareness, one of the two of the things that we talk about this one is knowing what to look for, and and we can create lists and all that stuff, and we can watch videos and and all of that stuff. The other one is understanding how to use our, our apparatus, our visual apparatus. And, and the first part of that, and as simple as it seems, is, listen, get off your electronics. Look around. Keep your eyes on your environment. And if you understand what's supposed to be normal in the area, the abnormal stuff will pop out at you. Sure. It, it'll be screaming at you. In fact, there's a part of your brain, the reticular activation system, that allows you to recognize these things. Okay. There, because your brain has to filter out so much crap that we're being bombarded with all of the ads and the noise and the sounds and, and all the, the, the environmental noise that's going on. Um, it filters all that. If you're using your eyes and, and your ears and your, all your senses and you're looking around and you're participating in your environment as necessary to do whatever you got to do, the moment something's out of place, you'll recognize it, but not if you're looking at your telephone. Right. right. Sure. That's what we that, call focus lock, like, right? <laughs> one stuff that everybody talks about. Uh, and it's so common. But it's spoken. critical, man. I mean, we talk about it too. We teach classes on the on that topic of baseline versus disturbance and setting ourselves up to not be focus locked on a phone and, and situational aware. I mean, it's just it's so, and I love hearing you saying it, too, because it doesn't matter if you're in a rural environment. It doesn't matter if you're in a, a large metropolitan city. It works. 
to just okay. pay attention to what's going on around you. Absolutely. But it also it also projects a message to anybody looking at you. Hey, this this person's alert. They're aware. So they're not they're, they're, There's something there, there's something to be said about predator and prey relations. And if you look at animals in the wild, if you look at a deer or maybe not. a Well, yeah, a deer. He's out there grazing and he looks almost like he's not alert, but he is fine oh, that environment and will recognize sudden movement. And so you look at, at somebody that, that looks, you know, they're, they're, they're not paying attention. They're grazing. They, they look like prey, right? But if you look at somebody that's alert and he's moving with purpose and probably has some good posture and maybe they're physically fit, the other predators in the area are going to look at him and say, ah, you know what? I, I'd rather find the other person that's asleep and, you know, on their phone. Uh, maybe their posture ain't too good. That type of stuff, that stuff is critical. So once you start moving past that, two other things that I talk a lot about is, What's the person's face telling you? What, what type of information are you getting from that? And two, what, what are their hands doing? Because if I can't see their hands and their face is giving me some sort of a weird idea, maybe they have an aggressive look, maybe they're avoiding eye contact, maybe they're looking at my jewelry, maybe you know something, something's going on. I'm getting that feeling and I'm trying not to like you know slough it off as something normal, you know, that that mm-hmm. normal bias that that. A lot of people want to say, yeah, you know what? Maybe it's not a big deal. Let me not worry about it. I don't know. I'd rather be embarrassed later. Yeah, sure. Now, right? And the next thing is, what is their movement in relation to me? What's going on? Are they walking towards me? Are they paralleling me? Did I, did I see somebody behind me through a reflection? Keeping that kind of head on a swivel attitude is kind of important. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be paranoid about it. Because I know that if I'm looking for a boogeyman everywhere, I'm going to miss the more obvious ones. I'm, what I'm looking for really is to do what I'm, what I'm trying to do, and I understand what's supposed to be going on. And when something sticks out of the norm, I'm going to pay a little bit more attention to it and to determine whether that's something I got to pay even more attention to, or if it really is you know, a nothing thing, with the understanding that we will t- kind of look into that normalcy bias and those types of of um, appeasing type things so that we can kind of reduce our, our, our stress or, or whatever. Let's change gears a little bit here. Uh, one of the things that you've mentioned, you've been through a bunch of very significant situations down there, including hurricanes and riots and what have you. Is there a way that we can plan for disaster? If so, how do we do that? Okay. The case in so, point, you know, here in Kentucky, and I'm not saying you have to address this specifically. We just had a hurricane hit the ground up here, and there were at least two towns that were completely just destroyed. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of people that had homes one day, and 15 minutes later, they didn't. Okay, How can so we plan for that? See, we, we had that here, and we had Hurricane Andrew in the 90s, and uh, that was it was a massive storm. There was parts of the city that completely disappeared. The, all that was left was rubble. My fa- my family was out of power for a little bit over a month. It, it was it was really eye opening. In, in what way? What was the biggest? What was the hardest thing you had to deal with with for uh, power not being there for thirty days? What was the most problematic thing you all experienced the personally? Most, the most problematic thing today would be that most buildings are not made. Uh, most buildings are made, rather I should say, with the with the intention of ha- of having air conditioning. Okay, so lighting and cooling would be a major problem. Sure. So you have buildings that are very well insulated, that that are deep, that 
unless you have an air conditioner, it can get very hot, very stuffy, very quickly and very dark. So that would be a major problem. But when Hurricane Andrew hit, that was pre-internet, pre-cell phones. So a lot of the things, a lot of the creature comforts that we take for granted today, we didn't have back then. So it was less of a concern. So I didn't have that much of a concern for electricity. So my what about mother, information? How did you get information about what was going on? Or radio. Radio. So, okay. so you had some sort of battery so, or crank radio or something? Yeah, a little battery radio. And and you know, radios are cheap and batteries are cheap. Everybody should have a radio and a, and batteries. Because listen, the internet goes down with just about anything. Right. Uh, on New Year's Eve here, you can't you can't get anybody on the phone because the band there's no bandwidth. Now it's gotten so bad that you can't get text messages out. So we use calling apps like uh, like WhatsApp or Signal to to kind of <laughs> use the, uh, the you know, the, the burst data stuff. But even that becomes, you know, spotty when you have this much density. So communication is a big issue. But being able to get radio information, that's probably your most probable, you know, your pro- most probable resource in, in a post-hurricane environment. After Hurricane Andrew, we got all our news via radio. And I also happen to have a police scanner, which is a great uh, source for news. With some of the new systems, it's not that easy to scan you know, the police waves. Um, but you can get some of the first responders and stuff uh, through scanners. And that's a huge source of information as well. So those would be my two, my two more uh, robust systems. I mean, if I, if I can get my cell phone working, that'd be great. What about ham radios? You all have a big ham use i love i love ham radios i love ham radios uh there's a learning curve to them there's you know you 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 have to know what you're doing to use them to their maximum otherwise it's just you know uh, a line of sight device but yeah i love ham radio if you're willing to put in the time it doesn't it doesn't take a huge investment there's a we're we're very active with the ham radio community here in fact here's a little bit of trivia after the haitian earthquake the first communication with the island from outside was a ham radio operator from Miami. Ham radio is excellent. I love that. Yeah, we're huge, we're huge advocates of ham radios here, and we push people that direction as often as we can. It just seems like, and this is why I wanted to ask you, it just seems like more and more and more people need to, well, you've already mentioned one, people need to have a medic on their team, in their family, in their home. They need, well, to, have a, they need to have a good comms person in their home. And that includes ham radio because over and over and over again, what we're hearing, and this is happening in Western Kentucky right now, ham radio operators are some of the first people to communicate with first responders in Western Kentucky. Oh yeah. And because ham's big for first responders, they always have, you know, either a dispatch or somebody in emergency management that can handle such things. And that's one of the best ways to pass information along. I mean, we're, I mean, it's happening right now with us here. It's it's well, one of those things radio, we got to get. The radio community also has a, a or they already have a established network of people that they can communicate with because they communicate on a regular basis. So that infrastructure is already in place, right. and and we've seen it time and time again after natural disasters that that really is the first line of communications, and they can patch people in, and and the 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 more well established groups are very well established, and they they okay. Mm-hmm. They're essential. They're essential. I think communication is probably one of your most important resources, if not the most important resource, because with communication, you can call in for help and that'll bring whatever you don't have. Hopefully community is also kind of important because if you have nobody to call, you're going to have a problem. 
Yeah, it's good to hear that you all have got a good community in a metropolitan city. That's that's sort of a thing here. Yeah, we're obviously very rural here. Like my town's thirty five thousand people, right? But even in my town, there's a net check in every Thursday night, and there's a community of people that know how to communicate via ham that are integral to emergency management. It's just critical up here. Good to hear that it's happening in the big city too. That's good stuff. I think that it, it, in more recent times, people have been becoming more preparedness minded. So this information is being sought after more and more and more. And especially here, we're seeing a lot of problems with cell phone communications. There's a, there's a huge bandwidth problem. There's certain times of the day that if you don't have the right carrier, you're not going to get communication very easily. Internet is a big problem. We just we just got a bunch of internet boosters put into the house because if my neighbors are using their their you know their uh, let's say they're streaming movies or whatever, and my other neighbor is using his microwave, and mind you, I live in a house, I'm separated from my neighbors, and the other neighbor across the way has a bunch of people at his house, the bandwidth gets spread pretty thin, and you got problems. So communication wow. is going to be a problem, and we've been watching this probably over the last ten years on New Year's Eve. It got That's to the point where. As landlines became less and less prevalent and people use more and more cell phone communications, it became more difficult to get your call out. It Why is that? I mean, what's going on in New Year's? People just calling, wishing one another Happy New Year or something? It just jams everything up? Interesting. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny thing, though. One New Year's, I couldn't get a call, a local call out, but I contacted my cousin in China. What's up with that? Well, just the switching. The switching or, or whatever, yeah. whatever mm-hmm. weird magic happened there. Um, so one of the things that we advocate that everybody do as part of their plan is to have a, a part of, you know, part of your plan should include communicating with people, right? So we have contacts in the local area, relatively local, and then we have contacts outside the area because we've observed these events happening, right? So your contact outside the area may be able to contact into the area, but you may not be able to contact across. That's a, it's a, it's a possibility. In the old days, before cell phones existed, we used calling trees, and that worked really well. Within a matter of a very short period of time, a high schooler throwing a party could be very easily overwhelmed as the word got out of the, of the party. This is before the internet existed. So now that we have social media and that type of stuff, you know, the, the flash mob phenomenon is nothing new. Right. It's just more efficient now. Similar types of communications could be used proactively. Uh, in an emergency situation, hey, you know, uh, Joe had a tree collapse on his house. He needs help. Let's get over there. Let's do it now. And then everybody calls whoever is on their calling tree can get a substantial amount of aid in a quick time. We saw that after Andrew. A friend of mine made a a very uh, profitable short-term business clearing trees. He happened to own a few chainsaws and had plenty of gasoline to run them and uh, went offering his services. He made a lot of money in that period of time. So. Communications, probably the first step in, in preparedness. But uh, preparing for emergencies, well, in hurricanes specifically, you, there is a very real possibility that a hurricane is going to wipe out your house and, what, and wherever you live and all that stuff. And for those situations, the, the, the traditional stuff, you know, insurance and that type of stuff is important. Uh, consolidating all your important documents in a, in a way that you can retrieve them easily. I, I keep them in a in one of those bankers bags, the, the mm-hmm. those that are like indestructible. Yeah, the hard copies, and I keep a thumb drive, and my wife also keeps a thumb drive with with uh, digital versions of those important documents. 
Very good. That's that's kind of me. And I also I also I also have a library and a hard drive. And that's kind of important to me. I got a probably got about 20,000 books in it. So that's kind of important to me. And that's kind of part of my grab and go stuff if there's ever such a problem. Right. Now, for hurricanes, we get a lot of a lot of advanced warning. Uh, I have a friend of mine that lives in fire country where out west where their bug out bags are, are pre are prepositioned so they can grab them, run into the car and run out very quickly. And in their situation, they, they have different things that they have to take they take into consideration, including a change of clothes in case they run out in the middle of the night in their jammies. So, but circling back to, to hurricane preparedness, barring the, the, the blowing away of your home and, and all of your belongings, you prepare for these disasters because the, the biggest problem with the disasters is that the loss of, of the things that we're used to, the grid and, the, and possibly the water services, uh, that, that disruption. You're obviously not going to be able to make it to the stores. So you should have some food, so shelf-stable food, uh, or even long-term food stores. You should have water. You know, those things that you need to keep you going, you should have any medicines that are appropriate or you foresee being useful, you know, pain medication, uh, stuff to treat diarrhea, stuff to treat topical infections, uh, possibly uh, uh, respiratory infections, that type of stuff. If, if you have a massive disaster, you, you may not have medical. You may not be able to get to the hospitals. In fact, listen, one of the things that we learned very early on in the pandemic was, listen, unless you're showing symptoms, they didn't want you showing up to the hospital at all. Now, this is very concerning because you start to get paranoid. Well, I, I got a sniffle. Do I go now? When do I go? What's the story? Right. So I, I happen to have a pulse oximeter as part of my medical kit. And when they started talking that one of the symptoms was that your, your uh, blood oxygen starts to deplete to dangerous levels, and that's kind of a sign that you really need to go to the hospital. Well, a lot of people didn't even know that they needed these things, and they became a thing. So being hey, aware. And, in all and, seriousness, uh, boots on the ground uh, opinion. How, does, how did DeSantis handle himself down there with the pandemic? Okay. So I just had it out with some person on the internet uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. goes by the name of Jim, uh, telling me that I shouldn't believe what I see with my own eyes and what I know to be true based on on information that I know. I think the census is handling it the way that everybody should be handling. If you walk around in our city, it looks like nothing ever happened other than the gas prices are very high and that some of the shelves uh, that are usually full are not so full. We're seeing shortages for sure. But we never, not once, did we see huge body counts. It, it, it just, I, it, listen, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to get you canceled, but I, I don't, I, I, I don't give a crap. I mean, okay. it, it, I just want to hear, I mean, cause, and this, the reason I ask this kind of questioning, Tony, is I, I'm a big fan of not believing the crap that we all see on social media. Oh, no. And no, you yeah. are there. You are there. And I want to know what somebody that is there is experiencing under somebody that gets so, you know, 50% of the people in, in the country hate this guy. 50% love him because of politics. Both of them are wrong for liking the guy or disliking the guy because of politics. I want to know what a guy who's living there is experiencing, and that's you. Okay, so uh, we have an inordinate amount of people moving into into our city with tags from New York and California. Traffic yeah. has, has become very, very difficult markedly. So one of the things that we were seeing very early on in the news 
was uh, the dead bodies. That was one that that really it, it it upset me to no end because here's what a lot of people don't realize: at any given time, you have a large amount of dead bodies in the bigger hospitals because people go to the hospitals with problems and they very often die. Now, my mother is one of eight siblings, and I watched them all die because they were all old, and most of them died of COVID-like symptoms, right? Way before COVID. The last one that died, my aunt, they wanted to leave her in a gurney in the hallway until the space opened up on the floor where they kept the bodies. Obviously, I raised all types of hell and I made her make sure that she stayed in her room until they got her into the appropriate place. But when I saw that room, it was a room full of dead bodies. And that's normal in a hospital. There is that room. So what the news did is they showed a picture of that room. Every hospital has that room. But we know, listen, we, we haven't seen it. Yes, people have, listen, to be clear, yes, people have died. People have been very severely sick. A lot of people are still struggling with the side effects of the disease. But do I think that there was a lot of funny business going on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine had a contract for one of the uh, one of the field hospitals that they did to manage the overflow from the hospitals. He had the security contract. They didn't see any patients, not one patient, not one patient. They built this huge hospital in this big public area, very expensive area to put a, a, a hospital. None of that could have been cheap. Those are huge tents that they had and trailers that they brought in and medical supplies and ventilators and all types of stuff. They didn't see not one patient. So the whole thing has been very, very strange. And I got very, uh, I got very strong feelings about this, man. I, okay. yeah. I, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing what the news are, 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 are showing very often. Right. But this is true. This has been true for a long time. I, I haven't trusted the news in a long time. I remember during Hurricane Andrew, um, in the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew, it, it was absolutely incredible because you had the local news saying that everything's okay. You had the the outside of the, you know, the news from outside the area saying that it was that it was horrific and devastating and terrible. And then I had the police scanner where I'm hearing all the calls going out and I'm, I'm hearing what's actually happening. And there's three different stories that are going on, all of which are contradictory. So I'm like, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've come to the point where, look, I, I really I, if I don't see it with my eyes and if I don't understand, I'm not going to take somebody's word for it. It's a shame that our that our news organizations have come to that. All right, I got one more question for you because I want to make sure that people get to get a chance to hear more about what you do. You, I saw on your website that you all offer emergency action planning and consulting. Is that yes. something that people come straight to you through the website? What's the best place that people can get shoot in contact? Us, yeah, shoot us yeah. an email. You, you can call us. We're old school like that. We answer our phones. Okay, so great. And how does that, and that's something that you can do uh, remotely. So if somebody from New York wants to call you and talk to you, you'll do that too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. And that's we, the same uh, website, right? Yeah, we do everything through our website. We're, we're very easily reached. Generally, I get back to people, if not myself, my partner, Mark, we get back to people within 24 hours. Great. You know, unless something major is going on, maybe we're off grid somewhere, but we may not be able to get to you, but we usually within 24 hours. Fantastic. So everybody listening, I'll have a link to their website down below in the description. So check that out. Click on it, you all. Just go ahead and click on it and see what's going on over there. Be good for you. So before we move on to something else, I wanted to give your listeners something actionable. Okay. Please um, do. Matter of fact, let's summarize with that and we'll, we'll call it a day. Give us, give us some things that they can do. 
Okay, so one of the things that a lot of people uh, are concerned about is how, obviously, and we talked about it, uh, how do you prepare for a disaster? Well, the, the common human needs are, are important. So food, I'm a big fan. I'm surprised more people aren't, aren't doing this, is the, the mylar and oxygen absorbers. And if you don't want to do that, you can use bottles, uh, you know, and, and uh, canning jars and that type of stuff and oxygen absorbers. You know, rice and beans, that stuff stores for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Wheat and corn, very long time. You like coffee, great. That stores for a long time. Sugar, honey, salt, all of that stuff stores for a long time. You can pad a lot of stuff with those ingredients right there. So, I mean, everybody, whether you're out in the country or in the middle of the city, anybody can, can pack that stuff. You put it into some plastic bins. Uh, I throw some bay leaves in it just in case there's, you know, to keep any bugs from coming out of it. Mm -hmm. You're getting into it, I should say. And you can store that just about anywhere. When my, when my wife and I were first starting out 20 years ago, we lived in a small apartment. Guess what? We found all types of creative places to store our food under the couch, under the bed. And, and it wasn't like an eyesore. Nobody had any, any idea. And our house has always been beautiful because my wife has a beautiful eye for that stuff. So that's a, that's a very important start. Now, a friend of mine I mentioned earlier who, who migrated here during the Cuban special period, his father and his uncle did something very creative. They did a guerrilla gardening. And this is long before people called it guerrilla gardening. You take any wasteland area that is not in use and you plant some wild edibles, most people are not going to recognize what they are. So you have a food source that you can access there that you, that you know. And unless you can recognize that food, and most people in the city won't. I mean, how many people are going to know what a potato looks like when it's underground? Right. right. They did a, a massive amount of guerrilla gardening. In fact, when they gentrified the park that they were using, it was in the news that they found like this incredible Garden of Eden or whatever, however the news put it. <laughs> so um, that's another option for people that don't have a lot of space. But something as simple as planting a small herb garden is going to take you a step closer to self-reliance. There's a lot of things that you can grow indoors. Also, now with the easy access that we have to solar, a lot of it is very expensive, but we got Harbor Freight over here and you can get a solar panel that'll get you started for a hundred bucks. Start looking at things like hydroponics, start looking at, at uh, solar. That's a great thing for apartment, apartment dwellers. The reality is that if you have cross ventilation, you don't need a whole lot of electricity. A lot of the older houses in Florida are designed so that they can naturally be cool. If you know what you're looking for, you know, start with a with a place that has an, a, a north-south exposure, right? Right. So sure. now you're getting less sun in the vulnerable areas. Put some awnings. That that's very helpful if you can do that. On the on the hot side of my house, I have tinted windows. It blocks out 80% of the radiation and it was not terribly expensive. Nice. Okay? I got the whole side of my house done for 600 bucks, which I mean it may be expensive to some people. I certainly had to save up for it. But it cut my electricity bill dramatically. Sure. It's cool to the touch at noon. And there's a lot of things that you can do to, to set yourself up to be more comfortable. What you need to be looking at is what did the people before this technology exists do? What can I do? What can I do if my fridge drops dead? How do I maximize that? Okay. Mm -hmm. A couple of things that I like to do. First of all, any lighting that's in it, if it's an older fridge, get rid of it or replace it for LED technology if it'll take it. Pack up all the little nooks and crannies so there isn't too much dead space. Something that I like a lot and I use on my fridges, I have a digital uh, thermometer 
that has the, the measuring thing on the inside and you can read it from the outside. So my plan, and I haven't tested this yet because we haven't had a power outage in a long time. Thank God. Um, I also have a generator, but anyway, my fridge, I have the digital little readout. So when everything's in there and nicely prepared, I snap a picture of it so that rather than having to open it, I can look at the picture. If I need something, I open it, I get it and I close it. And I keep an eye on what the temperature is because I know that once the temperature gets to a certain point, I'm going to turn on the generator and get my fridge cold again. I have a dual fuel generator, takes gas and it takes propane. Propane is stored. And for me, propane is really, it's, it's more expensive than gas. When you do the math, it's more expensive to run it for me in my situation. Mm-hmm. It's more expensive to run it. But I can keep a good amount of propane almost indefinitely, whereas gas, I'd have to rotate it. I have to put extenders and all that stuff. I love to have propane because if I have a sudden outage, I can run my generator. When it runs on propane, it's a lot quieter. I got, I got a, uh, an inverter generator, so it's not as loud. Sounds like a blow dryer from 20 feet away. It's not terrible. And it's right. putting out a decent amount of wattage. I can run both my fridges off of it hmm. if I need. I still haven't tested a, a little window unit AC, which I'm not sold on it, but it's important to my wife. So I, I'm probably going to get that in, in the near future. But I'm not using a whole lot of power. And I engineered it that way. There's a lot of people that, that would die without power. I mean, yeah, they might literally die, but, you know, the, the panic attack type dying. Um, a lot of anxiety about it. Yeah. I, see, I grew up before cell phones and the internet. So if my cell phone dies, I, you know what? It would be very peaceful for me. Um, we charge up all our electronics, all our power tools and everything else. Once we get a credible warning that there's a storm coming. The reality is that I keep most of my tools and most of my, my often used devices topped off anyway. Uh, my gas tank in my car, I try to keep it above. I never let it go less than a quarter tank if I can help it, but certainly no less than a half a tank. Because my thought process is if all of a sudden everything turns off and I only have what I have in the car, I need to be able to get to where I'm, where I'm going to get to in a lot of traffic. Absolutely. There's nothing that will deplete your gas faster than idling for hours. Well, ho- hopefully that's some good actionable stuff that your people can take. It is. Start, start with, with food and water. In, in some places, water is more important. For me, I'm surrounded by bodies of water. So if my problem is not a water problem, it's a container and filtration and purification problem. Right. Having the means through which to treat water, very, very important. I got a bunch of ways to do it. I have a, a bunch of stuff that I use for classes as, as props, but it's because I have the stuff and I use it and I test it and I, and I play with it and all that stuff. Uh, a couple of things to keep in mind when it comes to water and water filtration. There's a difference between filtering water and disinfecting water. And that's like super important because there's things that can get through a filter that can mess you up. So in Florida, we have uh, Cryptosporidium and Giardia. Those are big protozoans. We also have uh, amoebas. We have the the, the brain-eating amoebas. Uh, Filters take care of them because they're fairly large when it comes to microorganisms. But because we live in a major population area, and the closer you are to humanity, the more likely you are to get things that humans get, right? Because we transmit to each other. So in the city, I'm also going to concern myself with viruses and chemicals, right? or my, my, my water system. It needs to be able to filter the, the larger particulate matter to include large microorganisms. And then I need to have some means of treating the stuff that's going to get through that filter, you know, smaller bacteria, viruses, and possibly chemicals. So some sort of uh, adsorption type uh, technology uh, would be good 
And it's not ad with a B, but ad with a D, adsorption. The charcoal, like activated charcoal, will do that, will, will bind to uh, some chemicals and it's very useful for that. And you'd also want something that will take care of the viruses and stuff. The, the filter that I like has a, a technology that's iodine based that, that destroys uh, viruses. So it's very effective. So having the means through which to treat water is very important. So in a prolonged disaster where you don't have access to appropriate med medical, three major things, and we see this in developing countries, we see this in disaster areas, and these things start to creep up very quickly. As soon as hygiene and, and foodborne illness and waterborne illness and all these things start to become more common, you have three things that will kill you quicker than quick. Diarrhea diseases, usually bad water, bad food. You know, it's the oral fecal route or stuff that that contam that you get contaminated with in the environment. Um, you know, dirty water, dirty food. So diarrhea diseases, topical infections. So you're going to be doing more labor than usual. So those little cuts and all that stuff. If you're not able to wash your hands like you're used to, you might catch an infection. An infection, a small infection, we take that for granted. Man, you put a little neosporin on it, forget about it. I, I, I Listen, when everything is dirty because you're not showering the way that you're used to and you're not washing your hands like you're used to, that little cut on your finger could very easily become an abscess. And before you know it, you'll have streaking going down your arm. And now you've gone septic and you have a very dangerous, deadly situation that's going to require major medical, which you may or may not have access to. So this is something that's, that's kind of very important. So the three major things that you got to prepare for in terms of diseases are going to be uh, diarrhea, diarrhea diseases, topical infections, and respiratory infections. You're spending time indoors in areas that are not properly ventilated with a lot of people. Very easily, things start to accumulate and you start having problems and people start getting respiratory infections. And again, I mean, we, we saw that through the pandemic. That's a respiratory infection. We have all the, the hoopla with the, with the COVID, but you know what? The flu will kill you pretty dead if you're not prepared to handle it. Right. You know, if your immune system is depleted and you're stressed out and you're not eating properly and, and you haven't slept for days and you're having all of these issues, you're very vulnerable to all of these things. And these mm -hmm. are things that kill people before modern medical. And if you don't have access to modern medical, hey, guess what? <laughs> you're back in the 1800s again, my friend. So, I mean, those are some of the things that we kind of toy around with. And so people can click on the website below and get in contact with you for consulting and all that kind of good stuff. Oh, absolutely. We do. We do classes. We do consulting. Uh, very often we get people that have very specific needs. We have a huge network of people that we can draw from. So uh, you got a crazy idea and, and you want to try us out, give, you know, give us a shot. We'll, we'll look at it. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. That's, that's kind of our, uh, our MO. We, we make things happen. Well, Tony, this has been a pleasure, man. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely, man. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. So I have uh, everybody listening in. I'll have links to Tony's website below as well as social media. That's where I hooked up with him at on uh, Instagram. So that way you can connect with him there as well. So appreciate you, Tony. Thanks for coming on. Take care. And that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Blinds podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. 
Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Reliance School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.